0: And I remember kind of thinking about it and almost imagining an air mattress mm. and thinking this Airbnb is an air mattress kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I
0: don't know, that's kind of random, but that's always what I, I kind of associate to meeting you.
1: Yeah, interesting. It could also be a, a, like a kind of a carpet that's floating through the air and you can nap, nap on it. Could be airbnb as well like a magic carpet yeah
0: i think that's a worthwhile enterprise i know joel we've been talking about lots of different things we could design and build and stuff like that maybe this needs to be one of them as well yeah mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: You know, it, it it does remind me that cheap traveling around Europe, how UIP can also bring you a very different set of perspectives in that I remember, yeah, back when I was a young official, um, you know, just doing my first couple of sessions around that time, 2012, 2014, um, uh, we would always be figuring out what the cheapest way would be to get to that place, you know, take a bus there, take the cheapest flight from, from that direction to, to, to the other. And then take another bus, you know, just to make it as cheap as possible. And I remember a very stark contrast to where some UIPers can, um, make it in life, where when we organized the 30th anniversary of UIP in Brno in 2017, we had a alumni, uh, alumnus who was traveling to Brno and he took a plane to Prague, I think a pretty expensive flight from Heathrow, London, and then took a taxi from Prague brno which is a two and a half hour <laughs> ride and you know just splurge that money to the taxi driver and they don't even blink you know that's how far you can you can go with your journey in a couple of years
0: that's true i i, I remember okay it was in 2012 and on my way to Tallinn, uh for the Tallinn summer is um, I had the most ridiculous travel experience to get there because I was trying to do it on the cheap. So I was living in uh, just like south of the French Alps in uh, just south of Grenoble in France. And I thought public transport in France is ridiculously expensive, especially around the Alps region and stuff. So I found some cheap flights that actually went from Milan I was like, oh, okay, Milan to Tallinn, that would be really cheap. It only cost like £10 my flight. So I was like, perfect. I um, don't need any suitcase or something. Cram everything I can in a little backpack and £10 I can go. But I thought, shit, sure, I need to get to the airport. So I thought, okay, I can hitchhike to a place. And from that place just outside the corner but there's some kind of small local bus i can take that will take me just over the italian border and then i can hop on a train from there because the trains in the italians charge less for the same train journey then i can kind of hop on the train and then kind of go over to milan that way um, but as I went out to try to start my hitchhike thing, my parents caught me. They were like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, It's okay. Like, We're going to drive you down there. Just let us know where you booked your train. And I was like, well, I, I, I haven't really. I was aiming to go to the Italian. Well, like, okay, let's just go to Grenoble. Let's book you a train. Let's go. I was like, okay. So we went down to, to Grenoble and we tried to get the train, but we just missed it. It's like, oh, crap. But we could try to beat the train. On the journey so then we tried to beat the train and kept going for train station after train station but we kept missing it then realized that we actually just need to drive <laughs> all the way <laughs> to milan so me and my dad are in in his car we're driving through the alps over to milan <laughs> because i messed up because i wanted to try to book cheaply and about a six hour plus drive later um on our way over we didn't realize it's not actually milan but it's bergamo so then you have to go to the other side of Bergamo to kind of go to the airport and then fly in from there, mm. and and yeah, then he had to drive all the way back home afterwards. But I feel like that—that's something like e y p s would always do—is these like random cheap journeys that you try to plan out.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's beautiful that some of our members have the uh, time luxury to just think, like, what if I hitchhike to this section? It's like the entire way. It's Europe. There's not that not that many seas in the way unless you're going to the north or the uk it's actually doable
1: that that would make uh you know uip in the philippines like much more tricky that,
0: that's true <laughs> hitchhike a boat, you know yeah.
2: yeah we should make this a uip challenge like wherever they organize the next uh, icelandic national someone needs to hitchhike there <laughs>
1: Yeah,
0: Hike to Iceland. Yes, I'm sure you could yes. find a
1: crazy, uh, crazy uh, boatman, crazy sailor who could get you there. Yeah, hey.
0: sure, that's possible. Um, I remember uh, I used to do a lot, a lot of sessions in Ukraine, and when I started to do sessions there, like 2012, 2013 time, I had a friend over there called Dima, and Dima, he uh, yeah, he he was on the GB at one point. I think like 2013, 2014, he was on the GB. Dima. Uh, ho- Hon- Hor- Hon-chor- I, 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 if, if you yeah. listen to this Dima I'm sorry but I can never pronounce your last name yeah. so I'm just going to say Dima H <laughs> but yeah so it's a Dima and he did 40 50 sessions across 30 plus countries etc and he's got a fear of flights so he never flew mm. and he lived in Kyiv <laughs> in Ukraine so imagine and he was doing lots of sessions in like far western Europe and every time he would do a session, he would take a bus <laughs> from Kiev or take a train from like Kiev to Lviv, and then you start to bus across bus across Europe to be able to get to your session. So he would always have to leave a couple of days in advance just to be able to get to sessions.
1: Hmm. Yeah, there's there's a lot of people like that who are fearful of flying and who also have to travel between Europe and the US, for instance, and they just always have to take the boat. I think it's... Uh... It's it's magnificent how how peculiar people's uh, fears are as well, right? Like, uh, it's it's the safest way of transportation, for sure, statistically speaking, but still you've got basically the most people, uh, like it's the most feared method of transportation at the same time, just because you're way too high in the sky and there's the psychological danger of falling down.
2: Yeah, I think it's also like, in a way, that's really something that's always going to be a thing for UIP. There's always going to be young students that are trying to find the cheapest way to get there and trying to, you know, squeeze it in, in the <laughs> best way possible into their uni schedule or high school schedule or whatever. Um, but I don't know. Like, for me, when I started being in the leadership, I started kind of noticing the negative downside of this is that in that people who would arrive to the CGO... Having spent like the night in the bus before that, and be completely useless for the entire day, and no. I don't—it's just, yeah—it's just for for someone who's not doing that, who's not in that position, or need, needing to squeeze every last penny and every last minute out of their schedule, it just feels like such a such a waste for part of the session to arrive
1: there. So there, yeah, that's that. That's why. I've always believed that uh, having a sufficient uh, travel fund for participants who can't afford to to travel for any reason or to have them be able to afford a flight instead of a 24-hour bus should be a priority. And it has been, I I think, to some extent. And uh, I think it would be great to see it improve more and more and uh, to make sure to include it in the grant writing that the NCs are doing and really specify that they will contribute a significant amount to uh to this especially for people who really just can't afford it so in terms of like uip's outreach efforts
2: yeah and to anyone who's considering doing this if you can afford an extra day of your schedule just arrive a day early like a full day spend it just chilling in the city actually explore the place I don't, In UYP we tend to just go to a session last minute and then leave exactly after when yeah. this GA ends or the morning after. And you don't really see the places like I've been to plenty of countries in Europe where I just basically haven't seen any of the country because I just went to a session and we stayed at a school or some other venue. So take that part in your planning. Like You, you get multiple benefits out of uh, squeezing an extra day into your... Into your
1: travels, that's a great piece of advice, and I think that's what sometimes get lost gets lost in UIP as well. That people just come to a session without really enjoying much of the um, country that they travel to, or the or the culture of it. But of course, not everyone probably has the luxury to just take extra days off or miss university. But um, but yeah, I, I agree that whenever possible, it's a it's 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 a great way of extending your u i p experience, really. And uh, you can you can make use of this uh, service, which doesn't mean an air mattress that you're (laughs) going to sleep in, but you can actually get cheap accommodation or always use the network of people who can just have you host, have you on a couch. Yeah,
0: but U I P couch surfing, how how often have you guys used that just to like cruise around and then Mm -hmm. just find random people's places to stay in?
2: it came close enough to me that I actually ended up being an admin of the page just (laughs) a lamb and for anyone who's not a member of EYP Cutsurfing yet we're always welcoming all EYPers and it's a great place to just Mm -hmm. yell out that you're going somewhere and find if not the place to stay which is often the case you can find free accommodation but also to like connect with the network more I've met Mm -hmm. some really amazing people through that
1: Yeah, that it it brings me to a general observation about UIP and which connects it to a general organizational structure, which is something that I'm very passionate about. And that is the power of informal structures in formal organizations. So informal structures within formal structures or organizations, which can be even more powerful than the formal structure. I think UIP is a great example of it. The, the grassroots bottom up effort to, to build communities within UIP, uh, networks of people, um, which have in the past sometimes been like networks of people who, you know, are not very welcoming to other people, like a closed kind of circle, you know, boys club. But I think over time expanding to really beneficial networks open to other people and really people organizing from the bottom up, creating um, uh, groups such as UIP Couchsurfing, UIP Discussion, the Sessions Group, which just exploded and made awareness about opportunities for people just, um, uh, unlike anything seen before. And this all happened organically from the people, from informal structures. And it made the existing formal structure of UIP much more, much more strong, um, over a couple of years. And I think it's, uh, something that you see in other organizations as well um and uh yeah it's 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 just beautiful, beautiful to watch and I think uh kudos to all the people who think creatively about what they can bring to u i p without just complaining about something that someone does from the top down but actually doing something from the bottom up to make things better I think uh there are a lot of examples like that of people who took the initiative and made the organization better
0: yeah and I I kind of I kind of see that that kind of culture stemming from this very non-centralized approach that UIP has where you go to a session and the majority of the people in that session do not belong to the national organization who are organizing that session itself and so it's almost like most of the work or most of what's kind of going on is very fluid between the different national committees And then because of that, it's almost natural to not think about, okay, who is the formal owner of what I'm doing or who do I need to talk to for this kind of thing is that people just organize things and people just do things, um, whether it's a part of your national committee or not. Like, for example, myself and Joel, we're a part of EYP Ukraine kind of kind of randomly that we we just felt adherence to that national committee and we kind of liked what they were doing and stuff like that so now it's almost like we swore allegiance to them and like you know we're with you now ukraine so because i guess we work within that kind of structure maybe that has created more opportunities where people feel like it is an easy thing to informally do as joel kind of had the idea for this podcast we didn't feel the need to run this by the GB, by the IO, or by any kind of formal structures, because it's almost like a natural thing in UIP that when you want to do something, you just kind of do it.
1: Yeah, that's great. And uh, yeah, it is a great example as well. I, I should have I should have mentioned it in, the, in my original list as well, because <laughs> it's, a, it's a prime example. Um,
2: I was trying so hard not to pat myself on the back with that.
1: Yeah. Aww. Well, it's well uh, so it's, it's it's, well it's objective. It's it's objectively a very very worthy effort, and uh, I'm kind of surprised that uh, something like this hasn't um, been created in the past, even because uh, it's, it seems like a natural fit for for EYP to have uh, conversations like that and have them air out in the open.
0: I I think there's there's definitely been similar efforts to this on session levels. Many media teams have kind of gone away and created some kind of either radio or podcast series or something where we are bringing these discussions to a wider audience. And I guess the difference here is that this is outside of a session. And I guess, particularly amongst oldies at the moment, maybe that will change at some point. But (laughs) it's kind of like the people who don't necessarily um, attend too many sessions at the moment.
1: Yeah. Um, One more point on. The the earlier uh, argument you made about the decentralized nature of UIP and specifically the point about changing national committees, because again I think there is a way of tying it to other phenomena that you see in uh, let's say the real world outside of UIP or the, the the political structures uh, where actually people having the opportunity to switch between national committees is a great can be a great feedback tool for the people in charge of the national committees it's like the the old uh, political science concept of uh, voting with your feet so you you vote in a way of moving from one place to the other whereby you signal to the original place that they're they're not doing something right Um, and if if the national committees can pick up the signal then it's, it's it's an opportunity to to improve to improve things um but of course you can make the argument from the opposite side that people leaving the national committee because they don't like what's happening there could lead to the kind of brain drain phenomenon, you know, another real world phenomenon that we see people from Southeastern Europe moving to, uh, to the West and thus leaving their countries with less qualified people who can change things for the better. So I think you could, there could be like two competing, uh, a phenomenon going on there but i still think it's a it's a great uh it's, it's a it, it's great that we have such opportunities anyway to be more free and not be nation bound necessarily
0: and i i actually felt that, that there were a couple of times where there, that this actually brought some tension up so uh, in 2016 during rise so the, the the ren is um when when i was VPing that um, EYP France hadn't had somebody on the board of an IS for a long, long time, and they were like, "Yes, we have Nathan." And I was like, "No, I'm EYP Ukraine." They're like, "No, but this is—we're literally organizing it in your school. This is your home. Like, this is you." And I was like, "But, but I'm EYP Ukraine. You know, that's that—that's now my home." So we we had a large discussion, and then at the end, we finally did um ua slash (laughs) fr so i then had kind of both of them so they could still say that they had an uip france member (laughs) on the board and uh, joel sent me a um a paper the other day of of something that we might look into in in, in a different episode and um it had a whole bunch of names of people who are working on the i think the the evaluation restructuring in uip or something like this and spoiler alert and one of the names on there was uh Giada Benfita i think that's her name and uh for, for her nationality she always puts eu and i'd forgotten about that and i saw it on that and it's like yeah she always puts eu because when everyone says where you're from she's like well uh like she she's not not too sure about what she wants to reply to where you're from and then when it comes to what UIP committee are you in it's like well i i don't know what to really reply either so it's just this idea of like euness of i'm i'm a person and i work across different committees and then how how does that feel so so Marek, you you've been on the gb and when you start to enter those kind of international structures to then either represent or work across different national committees how does that then work? Because kind of one part of you was very much involved in EYP Czech Republic and then looking at EYP from an international level, almost trying to say that EYP Czech Republic should be treated the same as others, etc. when you're looking through those decisions. So then how did you kind of feel with that? Was there any conflict or anything?
1: Hmm. Good question. And i I don't think I necessarily felt any conflict, but I do think that the national perspective can be a real asset to the GP work, in that when you've dealt with um, issues of governance on a national level in your national committee as a board member or in other roles, um, you gain an understanding of what is needed on the national level that the international um, aspect of UIP can cater to. So, I do think. It's it's great if people who are currently on their national boards make the leap because they can make a lot of difference by knowing the national uh, level and the, the the aspect or the viewpoint of the national committee, because that's that's the most important um, aspect that a GB member, I, I, I believe, or anyone who works on the international side of UIP should understand, uh, because it's it's what's happening on the ground. And of course there are events happening on the international level as well, and um there's that they've been growing in size as well, I think the scope of what the international office with the support of the GPR are doing. But it's still the national committee level that's the the leg doing the legwork and where where most of the action is happening. And but yeah, in in terms of like a psychological shift, um it came really naturally to me, somehow, I think um it's just the idea of uh doing something for the UIP as a whole has been, had been brewing in my head for a long time before I joined the GB and I already had a set of ideas of what I want to to work on. So, um, working on what was then the councils also helped me because that also brought me to the international perspective and we've had our issues with the councils and our GB ended up discontinuing that structure, uh, eventually, but there were some elements of the council work for sure that, uh, that were, uh, very beneficial to the people who took part in the councils and to the EYP network in general. And for those listening who might not know about what the councils were, they were basically small working groups, um, usually around five working groups that dealt with specific issues on the international level and working with the GB to address some issues like the training culture in EYP or regional development and, and other areas. So, um, yeah, I think as long as UIP um as long as UIP makes sure to connect the national and international level from the beginning and people understand the different uh dimensions of UIP that transition for anyone can be made much easier because uh um you know when you're when you understand the importance of the international aspect of UIP then You know, you can take your part in making it making it better. And I've always had a a sense that most people don't know what the international aspect of UIP looks like because it's still kind of distant. It's it 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 does remind me of the of the whole European Union conundrum, where EU seems distant from people because it is literally distant. It's, It's it's somewhere in Brussels. People don't see it in the day to day but it's still very important in their life it's just not tangible so i think making it tangible through bringing the international governance uh seminars and trainings to national events and just talking about it in in sessions as well is really important to you know bring berlin in this case closer to to the national um to the national level as is the case with with Brussels and the and the eu
2: yeah one aspect of this to kind of expand the conflict between national and international level is also this well I've been thinking about this for quite a long time and feeling like this that there's maybe one reason why it is so unclear for people and feels so distant is because there's no real representation for EY peers that are not a member of national committee. Like up until I think it was maybe a year ago, I don't feel like at any point, my opinion or my interest as a quite an active EY peer was ever taken into account or even like approached as I uh, that I could be saying something other than as a session participant to influence the international decision making. So this this whole like, sure. Uh, I mean, why why wouldn't ey peers feel like the international structures are far away from them because their international structures are mostly representing the benefit of the governmental level. I mean, it it's natural like we. As an as an organization, EYP is legally responsible for what it does. And for that reason, it, it's become more and more common to make policies like, uh, well, you were talking about earlier about uh, reducing alcohol usage and adding more um, responsibility for people that are doing the sessions. And that's important that we don't get sued and the organization doesn't just stop existing. But I don't feel like in this this uh, decision-making process and other decision-making processes that have been going around the international decision level, they they have really taken into account the needs and desires of the everyday member.
1: Mm. that's that's an interesting point as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I, I, I do agree that. Um, we've, we've, we've made like a lot of strides and we've made a lot of, let's say regulations that can feel, I think, overwhelming to some, but also they are grown from the desire to make the organization more efficient and, and safer and uh, more welcoming to people, which I applaud. But I think the, uh, the question of the everyday EYP-er is an interesting one because I, I, I don't know who that is really. I, I don't remember the, we did, we did once have like an UAP census of some sort a few years ago that, that did provide like a demographic, uh, breakdown of the, of the organization, but I, I don't seem to remember the details of it. I, I, I do remember that something that everyone suspected was, was, was proven empirically correct in that most of the peers are from a wealthier background than, than the average, uh, European, which is something to be taken into account and probably something that will always be the case to some extent because of the nature of what we do and um, the the fact that yeah the, the the traveling aspect just makes it for instance very hard for someone from a lower socioeconomic background to to travel around and perhaps the school that they would typically attend wouldn't necessarily encourage these sorts of activities uh, which is also unfortunate and EYP can play, play a part to to change that as well but yeah I think we will still still see see some of it. I did want to build on one earlier point that you made, Joel, as well about the stateless EYPers who don't really have the, um, backing of the national committee or who don't feel like they are, you know, they, they can influence something on the national level. I'm wondering what kind of formal structure could be put in place to make that better. I think there are some elements of direct democracy in EYP that, that that work to these people's favor, like every member, can vote in the GB elections. I know it's a small thing, but it's, it's something that doesn't discriminate by a national committee. Um, anyone can run for the office as well if they want to. Um, and you know, I think it, it brings an interesting point as well. When there's someone who doesn't really fit anywhere, what the best strategy for them is. And if I think of the actual stateless people that we have in the, in the world and in Europe and in different countries, like it's, it's my, my perspective would be that Uh, the people thrive best when they choose a society they want to live in and there's some sort of process of assimilation and, you know, just like making sure that the the person and the culture is matched, not, 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 not to wipe away all of their individual characteristics, but just making sure that they fit into the culture somehow and they, they modify their, their, their ways so that they are a functional member of society. And in a similar similar fashion i think it could work with the uipers who don't have a place when they can pick a national committee that they become active in they will need to make some compromises to make sure that they can thrive in the national committee and through through that they will eventually i think have a have a chance to have their voice heard and and make a change but yeah it, it might be harder for some people than others but i think eventually uh when someone Wants to do something, wants to change something, or even wants to understand something, um, UIP is an open place and a space for open discussion, and you will always find someone who will listen to you. Maybe your idea won't be implemented, but it will, you know, maybe spark a further discussion that can be brought to fruition. And I think it comes back to an earlier point about the bottom up efforts of UIP, and we have seen even international level policies being brought to the fore and approved based on an initiative of a couple of members who were from different national committees they were organized around like one national board um and they managed to change EIP just through like sheer effort and determination like i remember the uh the old um recommendation system in in ISS was overturned and turned into this new evaluation system which made it more democratic and um, made um, the possibility of being a nice official uh, made it available to more people essentially and this was an organic effort by a couple of members who weren't organized around the national board but brought this up at the BNC and eventually had it approved and changed the UIP for the better so I think there are good examples that could be followed there
2: yeah yeah. I think this is all like um uh... When you're talking about changing national committee and making an impact through that, there's the point that not every person, despite being super engaged and super interested in EYP, is interested in national level policymaking or being a volunteer for a national level organization. Like myself and Nathan, we've never been a part of the national committees of any EYP country but we're still very active in the organization in other ways and through that there's uh, this kind of I feel like there's this kind of disparity of there's people that are willing to do this national level organization which is very valuable those are certain kinds of people that sometimes I've at least observed that they do fit into different kind of social Categories are opinion-based uh, groups than the members of VIP that do not do national committee member positions, and through that, yeah, we can vote in the GP elections. But even for that, there's uh, half of the votes are that are counted are cast by national committees. So there's even that is a, a skewed favoritism towards those people that are willing to volunteer at the national level, which is often just, you know, it, it can end up excluding people like myself, I'm talking about this from a very, um, bitter point of view in a way, because I never got along with EYP Finland in my time, which I felt like excluded myself from a lot of this, uh, international
0: EYP things. And thinking about how, like you said there we have some people who focus more on this like session level and when they're inside the session then they're trying to help organize structure innovate change things uh, according to policies for that particular session and i guess then the other people like you said there are that focus more on the national scale international scale like those more kind of background organization stuff and i guess maybe those people who focus more on the nc so on the national committee level maybe they are actually better placed and have a better perspective to have those kind of voices for national or international policy because i know myself i just go to session to session and i kind of yes i get to see things from the ground level but then i'm constantly thinking about how do i make this particular session in a certain way without thinking about the funding structure the all the other kind of elements that are happening in the background and when I start to see the different things that the BNC does or the GB does in terms of their decisions and that, I feel it impacts a lot more the way national committees work, as opposed to the way things are actually happening in sessions themselves.
1: I think that rings true to me, and I would say um, two, two two points come to my mind now, and one of them is about the yeah the the, the structural element of of, of UAP and the fact that the GB which is essentially the the government of the UIP on the um, international level, is elected in a similar way that the European Commission is currently. So in a, uh indirect way of people's representatives on the national level choosing the government on the international level. So I think maybe we have drawn some inspiration from that, and we, we did bring the direct democracy element into it as well whereas as you said half of the half of the votes are actually cast by the members themselves and perhaps you know again if 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 you believe that the system is, is skewed in an unfair direction i think a proposal can always be brought to the fore and you know perhaps you would be in support of the national committees but then again yeah you would of course come to the um you know, it would, it would probably come to the point where the national committees would like to protect their interests, which is probably their legitimate right in an uh, organization like that. But it can be debated for sure. Um, and the other point that comes to my mind is uh, the distinction between the session work and the national committee work. Uh, because I think it's a fascinating um, element of UIP as well, where it, it Again, to draw a parallel from the the, the, the real world, so to speak, um, it seems like the, the the work done by people at sessions it reminds me of the dynamics of the pub of the private sector to some extent. Whereas the national committee level reminds me of the dynamics of the public sector, which tends to be a bit more bureaucratic, tends to be a bit slower, tends to be more cautious and conservative, and uh, the session level tends to be more dynamic, more innovative, and actually much more efficient in getting things done in the end, because the people at the session are there full of energy. They come to the session and oftentimes they will do a lot of work that the national committees will then benefit from. So I believe it is the partnership between the session people and the, um, Committee, national committee, people that really has the potential of transforming EYP and has has been doing that uh, for a long time. Um, yeah, so it's just uh, another area where I see UYP's dynamics really mirroring what we see in uh, some of the political or uh, so- social dynamics in the in the world.
2: Yeah, uh, I really. I, I'm also going to jump on this train of mirroring things to the real world and get a bit of what Nathan said and a little bit of what Mark said. And that as, as Nathan said, some of the people that are actively involved in national committee level engagement, of course, they have a lot of information about the organization and through that might be more qualified to plan new policies for the international level as well, but. Then when we compare it to this, to the real world, whereas EYP is kind of trying to be this democratic organization, as far as at least I understand, we don't really have that democratic element when it comes to national committees, because oftentimes, at least how it went in Finland, is that we had exactly one candidate for president, and like maybe six board positions on top of that for seven candidates. As like that, in a way, could work if we we had these people that are knowledgeable and elected by the members of that national committee to lead it. But that's not a possibility in EYP because, of course, it's a full it's not a full time job. It's a part time job without pay. Like very very rarely, people want to actually do that, and that's why we end up in these situations where. In a lot of national committees, there is no choice for a president. It's either you have a president or you don't. And who wants the organization to not have a president?
1: That's, that's unfortunately true. And I, I believe that the current model of how national committees are often run um, selects for a very particular um, masochistic slash narcissistic kind of person who ends up (laughs) running for office Um, partly because yeah the masochistic element is just you know taking a lot of work that's not not being paid um just taking it as some sort of a challenge and the narcissistic element you know just being able to to run something at at a young age and uh having other people you know work for you in in a a way that you haven't experienced before in life um and i think it's uh it's not a sustainable model let's be honest about that it's uh we we should follow the model of what we've seen in some of the ncs and i i'm not i think sweden was an example of a national committee that actually has a paid staff member who has a regular job running the nc and the board members have more time for actual strategic things and don't have to worry about all the administrative uh, tasks that the usual board member has to deal with. So um, I think the whole system should be rethought. It's just, it seems like a lot of national committees don't have the resources to fund a permanent staff member and they will end up with the same old way of running things because there's just no other way. But um, yeah, reforming the way UAP is funded, is at the core of this. It has been for a long time. The discussions keep on coming back. And until that, res- is, that is resolved, what we've just described will just keep on happening. Um, but I believe change is bound to come and I hope that uh, UAP can find a funding model where they have, they get direct funding from the government. They are, uh, UAP on a national level is recognized as an educational entity and they will receive money from the government accordingly in the form of a grant that will allow them to do their work uh get some paid staff members or maybe even you know have the actual board members get a, some sort of stipend for doing the work because some people otherwise will opt to do something else where they actually can get paid and then EYP actually loses the people who can run for the board positions and yeah as you mentioned Joel then uh, it would it could prevent the situations where you only have one person running for president, perhaps. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's a lot to be done.
0: Yeah, in 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 EYP France, we 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 also have that where, I uh, yes, sometimes I do say we oui when it comes to UYP France. It it depends on the topic, but oui. um, but for, for this topic, I'll go for a we oui when for for a we 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 monsieur Baguette. um <laughs> as he sips his wine slowly <laughs> beautiful beautiful so in EYP France um it is the case that we, d- we do have like paid members of staff um because EYP France does tend to have quite a large budget lots of different funding sources that they've kind of grown over quite a few years etc I remember on my first session um I met this guy called Damien and he was he was one of the guys who was like either full-time or part-time working for UAP, and then he was the representative in the session and we'd be having chats and he'd say oh you see right there right right there right now I'm being paid I'm being <laughs> and it was always this kind of joke to be like you know, a whole bunch of us are just kind of go, going from session to session but then for for him it was also a part of his job is actually to attend these sessions and actually to kind of continue this the back end of the organization stuff and EYP France they they were organizing what 50 plus sessions a year you know (laughs) like the amount of sessions that was coming out of EYP France was absolutely ridiculous in numbers and I think it is also partly because of that is because they literally had and I think still have today uh, full-time staff members who are just focusing on how do we make sure this organization is running to its best capacity as opposed to relying on Individuals from their voluntary time of saying, "I really want to make this a great thing," which is still amazing thing, which we do. What we're like thirty, forty thousand of us, and ninety nine point nine percent of us unpaid, and the amount of stuff that we manage to get done and organize and do on a ridiculous scale is still pretty incredible.
1: For sure, for sure, and yeah, I do. I do think that be France is a. Phenomenon in and of itself. It's like a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a different world from the, the rest of the UIP. And it's not just because of the language aspect, but, uh, UIP fans has found a very particular niche in the way that they do their, uh, sessions and their work in general, where they have a completely extra aspect of multilingualism on top of it, which they are really proud of. They just organize a ton of sessions. And it's very, it's always been very fascinating to me. And, um, you know, to some extent, all of us were a little uneasy when the UAP France was stepping away from the international structures and, um, uh, not participating in BNC, BNC meetings. But at the same time, you kind of have to give it to them. You know, they, they had the balls to stand up for their rights. They tried their best to make a change in the UAP. We resisted some of the changes. We accommodated to some other changes, but I have to say, utmost respect to European France for what they did and uh, yes, and the other point that I wanted to build on um, was the yeah uh, the 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 national phenomenon in general that it makes a ton of difference which national committee you are actually from, because when you're from a country like Sweden or Germany or France. The opportunities that the, the institutional setup in the country gives you and the, let's say, frankly, the wealth that the countries have just makes a ton of difference, uh, compared to when you are in Armenia or, or Ukraine, um, or even, you know, countries like Poland and Czech Republic that are closer to the Western standard, but still are far away in terms of, you know, what the, government, for instance, can do to support uh, Sessions and what, uh, you know, the actual wealth of the population is and the uh, opportunities that young people get. So I think we, in UIP, we, we think we are just a pan-European entity that, uh, you know, and everyone is, is equal within within this world of UIP and we're all like Europeans and let's just, you know, uh, um, you know, meet at the end of the session, we'll we'll join in arms and sing imagine like we're all in this together. But there's a lot of discrepancy between what people can actually get from UIP and and uh, you know, how what opportunities are given. I feel like I've 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 left off on a depressing note now, which wasn't my intention at all. <laughs> I was just really thinking out loud and somehow <laughs> arrived at a grim conclusion. But um how
0: how dare you speak the truth? You know you are only meant to show the truth when it's beautiful sunshines and rainbows. How how dare you actually use critical feedback to try to advance our organization? Huh. Yeah, yeah.
1: But I thought this was a family program you know, that's, that's that's meant to uplift people. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, to an extent, you know, we we can kick them in the teeth a bit and kind of <laughs> show them some bad things. We we can kind of do what we want, I guess. And then, okay, so on, on that kind of like lens, so you've, on a work stance, you, you also have like a lot of expertise when it comes to understanding organizational structure within the public sector, within private sector, and trying to understand how can their structure um, be built in a way that advances their organizational company goals, et cetera. Um, and you've also worked with that within EYP. So in previous podcasts when we've been talking about training or we've been talking about different elements we've been kind of comparing how well eyp does compared to the real world and stuff like this and i know you've already given the example of informal versus formal structures but what else could you tell us about how does eyp kind of benchmark or compare to the rest of the world when it comes to our organizational structure
1: and those bits yeah so i will i have to say From the beginning that EYP kicks ass in terms of uh, competence and quality of the work that we do internally. Uh, First of all, the people that come out of EYP and they arrive at any institution, any company, they have a huge advantage. Um, And that's partly because they, UIPers, um, you know, the UIP selects for a certain type of person that's, you know, motivated and wants to work on bettering themselves and the world, which mirrors in what they do then when they enter the private sector. But mainly, I believe the UIP culture has, um, developed over the years into, uh, in, in such a way as to just by sheer tradition and building on, on on past innovations and experiences made a really strong organization with a lot of inherent efficiency in it and that's not to say that we don't have a lot of inefficiencies in UYP, but just the way that we run meetings the way that even our flawed international bodies work in the way that we are able to gather feedback from people not And the session context is one prime example, but I believe even in out of session contexts on some of the national committee levels is something to be admired. And again, it's, it's far from perfect. But what I've seen in other organizations and especially in the public sector, there's a level of, you know, there's, there's incompetence ingrained in the culture, incompetence it's rewarded to some extent because in, <laughs> the worst thing you can do in a, in a public institution is try and change something because challenging the status quo means that people cannot leave uh, the office at 3 PM because there's a meeting that you want to discuss some strategic thing. Uh It means that they need to change the way that they do things on a daily basis. And it's, it's just very much discouraged and people who, enter the public sector, for instance, from other companies and want to change something, they will quick, quickly realize change is not possible. They will, you know, hit the wall and then they will leave in a couple of months, uh, disillusioned. Um, so you might be in that really stacks up quite well because the way, what, I, what I've seen, the, the way that we organize things has improved dramatically as well. Uh, for instance, the level, Of quality that our sessions bring if I compare it to conferences that I've visited or other events organized by some mainly public institutions uh, there's a world of a difference Um, maybe that wouldn't be the case if I compared it to UIP in 2011 in terms of the quality but uh, UIP in 2021 2020 uh, there's a yeah there's there's just so much that other organizations can learn from um uh, you know just the sheer fact that we have we have a master plan of a session which has become the gold standard you, when you mention a master plan when you're organizing a a, a conference uh, with a public institution a ministry they will ask you what is a master plan when you explain what a master plan is they will say you know we don't need it we just have a peter is gonna figure it out on the spot. And that's it. And, uh, it's, it's somewhat depressing, but it's also hopeful that if enough people from the UIP start to populate different organizations throughout Europe and throughout the world, they can bring about real change because some of the methods that we use, mm, you know, like, as I mentioned already, feedback, team building games, the structure of Working with the committee at a session, um, but even yeah, national committee strategies and uh, you know, other um, st- structures that have been used in um, in different national committees in terms of organizing their work and working with volunteers. When this is replicated in the real world, a real change can be made.
2: Yeah, it's a it's it's a wonderful line. In EYP, it kind of feels like it just comes from this. Endless enthusiasm of the participants to be there and to take some ownership of the event and make it better. There's a lot of uh, things on the running on the background from all the all the culture that we've built over the years, and it's going to be interesting to see how we continue building that culture, especially now that we're moving away from this uh, digital session boom and how what 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 are the learning goals that we're gonna take away from that? Mm. how do we ensure as an organization that we take those learning goals?
1: Mm. And I think just one more note on the culture, I think it is vastly important, and a lot of it is just it's just simple imitation basically of what other people that have come before you have been doing, and I know it from myself, like I was observing what my u i p elders were doing at the time when I was. You know, still a young official just learning the ropes. And my whole EYP journey afterwards was imitating what I saw from the past and just building something of my own on top of that. And I'm pretty sure that the people before me did it the very same way. Um, some, you know, it started somewhere in late 1980s. And ever since then, it's been like a snowball that's been, that's been building and and growing in size and, and excellence. Um, but yeah, the, the, the idea of, um, making sure that we, um, take lessons learned and, um, uh, build upon them is a very prescient observation. And it, it all comes down to, um, thoughtful governments in terms of being receptive to what the challenges have been. And really having the willingness to adapt and make a change in the way that we do things. And that's again, to me, the difference between what we can do in UIP and what some of the, let's say, public institutions are failing at being able to really improve internally. And I think some of the examples that we've mentioned before are really hopeful in that we, we, we can adapt and we can be better in the future. And you know, it's, Again, an example of the difference between UIP and other organizations is that having a simple document uh, in a, a Google Sheets called "Lessons Learned," writing the lessons that you've learned and thinking about what actions you can take to remedy it in the in the in the future. That's something that we figured out in UIP quite some time ago. Uh, people have internalized that to some extent and it's just not present in other organizations you you don't have a structure like that and people when you bring up a concept like write up lessons learned for the future you feel like uh, Thomas Edison in that company you know, even though you haven't (laughs) you didn't bring anything new but you feel like uh, you're making a real difference
2: yeah and I think one of the important things, in a way, is also that even when we encounter these things that we do not like, like me coming all bitterly about not uh, getting on with EYP Finland, it's still we still stay with it, and we still push this agenda for the good of EYP. Like we're we're still thinking about this whole thing of how can we improve this? How can I? In a way, think about how how can EYPs like me maybe in the future have a bigger say in the international structure. But that's not just me booking off and being like, "Well, this this didn't work out." It's more of a larger thing.
1: Yeah, the the, the arc of history bends towards justice. It's it's an old cliche, but uh, I think it rings true in EYp as well.
2: Yeah, I think one of the reasons maybe why EYp is so good at this things that other organizations are not is because we're so decentralized because we have the need of how can this become this thing that I learned, how can this be a thing for EYP more than just what it was at that session? Like, if you think about that at workplace, you never have that kind of scale of, okay, in the next two months, there's going to be another 20 team leaders that are going to do a similar thing that could benefit from my learning. That's not going to be that the case in a corporate environment. So there's less of a need for, in a way, there's um, organic knowledge that uh, transfers between people because in, in, in the organization, in the um in the public organization and private organization sphere sphere, that our information stays with a couple of people and maybe if they mentor some people that goes on with them
1: yeah that's a that's a great point and I think um, there's there's one element of UIP that um, I remember an old Czech UIPer uh, saying back in the day um, which is that UIP is a great environment to fuck up in. Um, so I think maybe Nathan you also made a similar point in one of your speeches that I remember. And the other one, yeah. Yeah.
0: The perfect place to fail.
1: Yeah. And it's it's ingrained in the organization as well is that people who come in, and I've mentioned this before, are quite often people who haven't been in a position like that before, either leading a group of people in a committee or running an NGO, um, when they're on a national board and they will fail with a high degree of probability. Like something will go wrong. Um, they will run into a crisis in a session. They will have some financial struggles covering, uh, for, uh, covering a session's budget and it probably will happen. And that process of fucking up and failing. Will lead to their personal development and arguably, you know, the organization, uh, will be stronger as well as long as the, as we said, the lessons can be taken in, but always new challenges will come in and people will have to reinvent it. Re, like they, they will have to reinvent the wheels to some extent because they will come into an environment that they, they don't know. And despite all the preparation that they will get from their predecessors, they will always struggle to some extent. And that process of struggling is just an inherent part of the organization and something that makes EYP what it is and arguably uh, makes it stronger in the end, actually.
2: Yeah, I would definitely argue that it makes it stronger. Like uh, most of the things that I've ever pushed focus on as a team leader or as a facilitator of some sort is like the things that I saw that could have been done better. The struggles of other people, where did others fail that I could then improve on? Like it definitely drives us forward that we have this whole, like how can we fail? And even if that's something that's usually done well, maybe that one person failing it is going to inspire someone else to make an even better structure on top of the already functioning structure that one person failed to follow.
1: Nathan, maybe can I, can I follow up with a question to you? Because I'm, I'm mm. curious about your perspective on it, because uh, I think there's a distinction between saying that the UIP is the perfect place to fail, which you've, mm-hmm. you've the point that you've made in Yerevan in your, one of your speeches and the fact whether that UIP needs failing in order to work mm. as an organization. So where do you land on this, uh, on this distinction?
0: Yeah. Um, So for the first one about EYP being the best place to fail is about that the culture is a really positive place in which when you muck up, when you fuck up, people aren't going to blame you. People aren't saying, okay, who did that? People look at, okay, what's happening? How can we make this better? And how can I give this person feedback to help them grow? This is our constant thought. And because we have this safe space and because what we do, does impact people's lives but not in a way that if you make a mistake suddenly hundreds of people are going to go hungry and they'll starve or something like this even let's say as an organ you mess up some food thing we're going to find a way through this it's very difficult to if you have the right intentions to make such a dramatic issue that it really really has a negative impact so um, i guess this is the idea of being the perfect place to fail is we take higher positions and we take on way more responsibility than we probably ever had or ever get the chance to for quite a few years, and then we get to test things out. And because of the space we're in, it's the perfect place to do that. Because of the response you get, so that would be, I'd say, the first one. That second one i saying said: Does EYP do, do? Does EYP need to fail? Do people need to fail on things in EYP for it to grow? A hundred percent, I would say yes, because I think failure is just a part of life. Failure always happens everywhere. But do we recognize that failure or do we cover it up? So the more, I guess, you've been looking into public institutions, you could probably see, does failure happen? Yes. Is failure hidden? And do people then cover up by saying, we just need more budget? We just need this. There was this issue. There was that issue. And people like playing that blame game, etc. cetera. Um, that's how failure is then covered up or people put in political spins on things for people to make others not realize that they failed and everyone just feels that negativity so I think in no matter what you do no matter where you go failure is going to happen it's a part of life and in UIP if we embrace failure then what we're saying is we're embracing awareness of what we're doing embracing awareness of impact and wanting to do better every time. So that would be my distinction between the two. We, we,
2: I I'm just thinking like for our average listener, is this something that would need an example to be really understood or is okay, this. Yeah.
0: A- okay. So if, if I want, if I give an example here, um, I think it's an example. I don't know if we used this in a previous episode if we did call you're gonna kind of hear it maybe a second time is that i really messed up when it came to the um um the what do you call it for for the yerevan is the chairs team have to put together some documents for delegates uh what do you call that stuff for them topic Uh, topic overviews overviews. that's the one so topic overviews the process of topic overviews i fucked up royally i really messed that stuff up um through different communication issues etc and it was under my responsibility and so it didn't happen well people were not happy about it that was my fault and i have the opportunity to try to cover up try to say oh no look everyone everything did kind of come out okay this is still working this is fine let's carry on with our work etc this would be an example of me trying to cover up that failure and saying um we can just move forward um i don't want people to realize that i've made a mistake because they're going to think i'm bad etc but if i go to the first bit again Knowing that EYP is a perfect place to fail is that I know the response of other people is going to be welcoming and that, and that is okay for me to make a mistake. So in front of the chairs team during chairs training, completely owned up, sat down and said, I fucked up. This is what I did this is what I did. I made this decision on hindsight. That was not the right decision. I didn't communicate this. I didn't tell you that. And I was very open. And then I literally asked them to criticize me further, to tell me what they felt from this. And many of the chairpersons really opened up and kind of really said how they were really affected by some of these decisions to an extent that I wasn't aware of. And we could have an open discussion, start to heal. And for me, I learned a lot through that process. So I was able to then grow. And I'm sure many other people in the room were also able to learn and then grow. So this is what I mean if you com- kind of combine these two of CNEYPS is okay to fail. And it's okay to fail because when you admit failure, other people aren't going to beat you down, but they're going to bring you up. And it's important for me to admit that failure because I do fail many times. And it's not a question of if it's a question of when I fail, because we all fail all the time. I need to then admit it and come clean and work with it in order for me to continue growing and to help also our organization to keep growing in its feedback culture.
1: And I see Joel has frozen. Mm. No. I was hoping some fun. I thought we would do like a, you know, Joe Rogan type of podcast of three plus hours or something.
0: Oh, well, we were aiming for six, but um, (laughs) six six puppies that Joel just got yesterday. Mm. Did you? I'm just checking if he can hear us.
2: I hate puppies.
0: (laughs) No, I like them. I think they're they're really good... um, Especially with like with a little bit of broccoli, some sweet corn, maybe like a little bit of salt, pepper. Mm.
1: When you're in China, you can get a lot of that.
0: Mm. I will definitely test that out.